0: This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, poets we lost in 2022. I don't mean to be grandiose, but when some people die, a whole era dies with them. Such was the case with Richard Howard. Howard's writing was unapologetically highbrow. He peppered his poems with esoteric facts about artists, writers, musicians, and historical figures. And he was so intimately familiar with these long-dead people that he could even speak as them, taking on the diction of their time and place, or at least a Howardian version of it. What he also did was use words lesser mortals like myself have never even seen, not just in his poems, but in conversation. In one interview I read, he casually drops a gem like nugatory, or scoptophiliac, a word that only the exceedingly erudite would know as dirty. Of course, for everyone else, his poems could feel inaccessible, even off-putting. But Howard did not seem to mind. All that knowledge he had amassed to the point of overflowing during the nine decades of his life simply gave him too much joy. Then dementia eroded all that, and in March of this year, Richard Howard died. To remember him... I talked to someone who knew Richard well during the final two decades of his life, the poet Craig Morgan Teicher, who wrote a very moving tribute to him on the website of the Paris Review. When I sat down to talk to Craig, I wanted to start with the end. So I asked him what it was like to see his most learned friend slowly lose his learning.
1: It was really uh, shocking. I I mean, Richard had this encyclopedic mind and, I mean, it was very literally encyclopedic, right? Like he kind of had each fact memorized and his whole body of poetry was, or one of its major obsessions was like imagining what would happen if two literary figures who never met had met and talked about everything that they wrote about and talked about, So he knew all, you know, it's like he could speak as Lewis Carroll, you know, in a poem with the facts of Lewis Carroll's life at his disposal. So it was really shocking to see that mind, which had never had to reach for a certain kind of information, suddenly just have no idea where to find it. It was definitely sad. Uh, And at the same time, you know, I met him when he was 75 and he didn't have any health problems until his mid eighties and didn't really begin to lose his mental faculties until his early nineties, you know,
0: that's incredible. And when, when he started to lose his faculties, like how did you react?
1: I mean, I, I wasn't that involved day to day. Once that was happening, my, my sense from his partner, David is of course that he found it very frustrating. Um, David did tell me that they reached a point where Richard couldn't really read anymore. And then they sort of adopted a really dedicated practice of David reading to Richard. Mm. And actually David read Richard, all of Richard's own work. Um, and, you know, David said, um, and, you know, this is David Alexander, the the artist who was Richard's longtime partner. I think partner of 40 years, David said to me when I saw him the other day. Wow. Anyway, uh David said that, you know, he had read Richard all of the poems and all the essays, and Richard didn't quite remember that he wrote them, but he liked them, you know, and he thought, oh, well, they're very oh. good, you know? <laughs>
0: I love that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, thank God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, then I'd like to start with the beginning, or at least the beginning for you. Uh, how did you guys meet?
1: So I um, I went to the Columbia Graduate Program, the MFA, and Richard was one of my first semester teachers I had Richard and Lucy broido and as I'm sure any research you do on Richard will turn up Richard liked to pick favorites. Um, mm. and he was flagrant about it and almost relished the unfairness of it um, and for whatever reason he picked me. I mean I, I think for him it always had to do with you know he, he he liked my poems which were very nascent and very young and I I think he saw in me a sort of disheveled, person who could probably benefit from his help. Um, you know, so, but but he conducted his classes in an unusual way. At Columbia, you would go and he would lecture about the poets of his generation, his friends, you know, Richard Hugo and Charles Simic and um, Madeline de Vries and Air Ammons, and he would tell stories about times he hung out with them, and then he would have a big packet of poems that we would discuss, and then the, the workshopping part happened at his house. And instead of doing a workshop at a table in the round, you would go alone to his house and he would take your poem and put it on a clipboard while you sat there and tried to stop his dog from humping your leg. Um, <laughs> and we should talk more about his dog, Gide, because I was very involved with Sheed's life. Uh, and he would just line edit your poems while you sat there and watched. And then he would tell you a few things about them. So everyone who worked with him had this one-on-one time with him just built in. And so we became friends, you know, over that one-on-one time. And, you know, and then by second semester, Columbia sort of hired me as his assistant just to... I, I think that it, as much because they wanted a go-between to make sure that Richard <laughs> did stuff on time and... Richard could be very, um, petulant with people who he needed to do things. And so I was there to sort of buffer that and to help keep him organized with his classes. And so, you know, I, I just ended up over that year and a half that I did that just spending a lot of time with him. And then the, the, the next big thing that happened was that when Richard, you know, Richard had a dog named Gide. He was a French bulldog. Uh, Gide was, I think, Richard's second or third French bulldog in a row. Gide really did not act like a dog. I mean, Richard said to me once, you know, I don't want to deny him anything. So, so, so Richard hired me to take care of Gide. And when Richard would leave town, I would stay in his apartment and, and I would take care of Gide because Gide, you know, of course couldn't go to a kennel. And Richard's apartment was, and I actually just went there for the last time to sort of say goodbye to it. It was a remarkable little New York Railroad apartment. And Richard had literally lined each surface from the bathroom to the alcove around his bed with bookshelves. And so there were probably 10,000 books in that little apartment. Literally, I mean, he hung paintings on top of the bookshelves.
0: Wow. And it was little, right? It was like a, it was, was it even a one bedroom or not even? No, it was
1: a studio. Um, It was just a long, narrow studio that Richard had lived there for decades. And, and the amazing thing is that he kept his correspondence in the books. So, you know, I mean, here I'm, I'm going to reveal something which, uh, you know, it seems sort of okay to reveal now, but of course, and, and I wasn't the first person to be the Gide sitter and I wasn't the last but of course when Richard went away I would sit there and read the letters you know (laughs) and you know just learn all this gossip about the great (laughs) poets of the late 20th century. Um, Okay you can spill one right? I don't think so I think I would better not I think I'd better not. They're
0: all still alive.
1: Not all of them, but they're all famous. You know, they're all, they all have sort of legacies that I don't want to, (laughs) Uh, you (laughs) know, but I I mean, obviously the things I remember are not like, oh, somebody wrote this nice letter, you know, it's all. Sure, of
0: course. It's all like the real dirt. Yeah.
1: Um, But, but I I mean, I mean, again, the the things I remember, you know, you have to keep in mind, Richard, especially in the seventies and eighties and early nineties was a major force in poetry publishing. Right. I mean, he was a person who could, you know, meet someone off the street and they'd have a book contract in three hours. I mean, he, he edited the Braziller poetry series, which was a, a groundbreaking series and launched Frank Bedard and Charles Simic and JD McClatchy and all these people. And then by the time I knew him, he was sort of the advisory editor for Grove for their poetry. And so a lot of the correspondence that I remember because I was really interested in publishing myself at the time, not in publishing myself, but in in my own f- mm, f- future mm. as as someone who might publish things. You know, I remember all the correspondence about the publishing. Right. So, it, you know, it was a lot of stuff about about that. And you know, seeing seeing these sort of sides of these writers where they were like, "I need, I need to publish things um,
0: <laughs> for money." Well, or, for, for or, you know,
1: for all the reasons writers need to publish for tenure and for. Um, you know, because they want to make sure that God hears them when they yeah. when they cry. <laughs> um, but, you know, but it was amazing to see, you know, these people who were mythic in my mind, you know, to just see them like being utterly human, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was a big thing for me with Richard too. It was just like really getting to understand, like Richard was a really unusual person in a lot of ways. Like he was able to live his whole life just immersed in culture. You know, there was sort of not a moment of his day when he wasn't sort of surrounded by opera and poetry and um, paintings. And so like, on the one hand, he was just a sort of a fanciful, like it just, I, I had no notion that people could live this way, you know, where they don't think about anything, but but what they love. And on the other hand, I got to know him and through him many other poets just as as people, you know, it was sort of a crash course mm. in like the the actual size of larger than life people in this world that I wanted to be part of. And Richard granted me access to that. And it was it was amazing. Mm.
0: There are a few things that you started talking about and then kind of dropped. So I'd like to just pick up on those Um one maybe the silliest one was his dog Gide. Oh, yeah. can you tell me a little bit more about him yeah so
1: so Gide was a was a little tan french bulldog um but but he wasn't a dog he was it, 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 he was a projection of aspects of richard's personality you know and he was <laughs> richard and him had sort of customized each other t- so that they you know they could have a happy life together so so Gide, mm-hmm. you know Gide just did whatever he wanted. Um, he did a lot of humping. A lot of humping. And you know, it's it's sort of gross to say, except it's so funny. You know, it's so... Um, but Gide also... So he just, he wouldn't walk. To get him to walk, I had to carry a bag of kibble. And literally every three or four feet, I had to bait Gide with kibble. And then when I got tired of doing that, which... which and Richard did the same thing. When I get tired of doing that... Richard had sort of developed this way of holding the leash that I imitated, where you essentially hold it straight and long like an oar and you row Gide forward and get him to walk about four steps and then you do another <laughs> row. And and so w- this is how I would get Gide from Richard's house on Waverly Place to the dog run in Washington Square Park, which, you know, is like a four minute walk that would take 20 minutes. Um, And I remember the first time I took care of Gide, I I didn't understand that this is what Gide did. And I thought it was like me not knowing how to walk him. So I carried him all around the park because I was like, what am I supposed to do? And I was like, you know, I remember being sort of stranded at some point and being like, this dog won't move. How am I going to get him home? How am I going to do this? Um, The only time he would move fast is sometimes you know, Richard's building had a trash chute at the end of a long hallway. And so I'd have to take the trash out. I would open the door. She would see it, look up, run out the door and then turn back around, stare at me. And, you know, I swear he smiled and then he would dash down the hall as fast as he could. It was the only time I ever saw him kind of move quickly and I would have to chase him. Um, and, and Wait,
0: what, what was that about? Just, he, he really liked the smell of no, the No, he sh- was
1: messing with me. He was playing. Oh. <laughs> He was just playing, but it was just, he was a phenomenally lazy, do- you know, he was, a, uh-huh. he was a kind of a, 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 a sack of odors, you know, except for <laughs> when I would open the store and he would run. Um, he just, I mean, look, dogs are weird, but he was extra weird. Um, but then he just, you know, I spent a lot of time just sitting in Richard's apartment with Jeed curled up on my hip, you know, was, he would just curl up next to me and I would read these letters, you know? <laughs> Um, and
0: there's one other thing I want to pick up on, and that is you talked about these one-on-one sessions mm-hmm. and that, you know, he would put one of your poems on a clipboard and then give line edits. Mm-hmm. What kind of edits did he get? Like, whatever you mem- I mean, remember.
1: So it felt very much like he was working as an editor, you know, meaning he would, he didn't want you to make major changes to the poems. He would make kind of alterations, you know, and every so often he would cross out a whole line, but it was a lot of, you know, using diacritical marks to X out words. And he would sometimes substitute another word. He also really liked the lines to be even. And so he would just like start
0: as yeah, long. Yeah. yeah.
1: He liked the look of an even poem and felt that that was, you know a kind of virtue in and of itself and so he would sort of you know snip your long lines and so you know you would kind of walk out of there with this poem dressed in little neat tersets and and i thought the bravest thing in the world was like i you know i saw frank bedart's poems and i was like oh my god the one line is like so long and the next line is so short that's so courageous <laughs> you know, it took me years to just <laughs> allow myself an uneven line in a poem, um, which is so silly. But, you know, uh, you know, it was I mean, but it, it felt to me at that time, it was like, wow, Richard Howard, he's this famous guy. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He, you know, he sort of loomed over Columbia in this very profound way. And it was like, wow, this guy. When I was 22, I was very young and I was like this guy is reading my poems and taking them seriously I must I must really have arrived you know yeah um you know and it it would take me years to sort of understand at some level that like the whole this was this was the way Richard made friends it was the way he moved through the world poems were the way that he connected with people and so I mean he certainly liked you better if if you were good at writing poetry but it was, it was his way of talking, you know, and, um, it was his way of, of just sort of bridging the space between people. So, um, you know, most of the poems that he edited were, were student poems and, and they're gone, you know, they're, they're not poems that will ever be part of my sort of body of, of work, but it was the way that I got to know him. And, um, that feels really beautiful and precious. And, Also, you know, my wife, Brenda Shaughnessy, also was his student before I was. So we have, you know, in our relationship, that's always been a part of our conversation. It's like, what was it like to know Richard? And what did we each know of him? And um, it sort of reminds me, many, 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 many people have known him in this way. And, you know, it just makes me feel part of this kind of community. And when I wrote that piece for the Paris Review a number of people just emailed me and said, Oh my God, I was Richard's student in, you know, 1983. Wow. And you know, you, you like, I did the same thing with him and you really caught the sense of what it felt like to, to be in that room with him. I mean, there's, there's this vast community of hundreds of people, you know, some of whom became poets, some of whom didn't hundreds, probably thousands, you know, from Columbia, from Johns Hopkins, from Houston, who had this relationship with Richard. And, you know I, I, because he picked favorites there are also as many people who are bitter about how he treated them but but and that's part of the legacy too i think but there are also hundreds and hundreds of people who feel this this intimacy with him and this closeness that that he he offered you know
0: yeah because the generosity of that i mean you spend a lot less time if you just look at students' poems in class and be done with it when the hour is over to invite them one-on-one in your apartment. Like, what a dedication. Yeah, well, and, and
1: I mean, it was also something that was possible at that time. You know, you could never do it now. You'd would, it would, you'd get a Title IX complaint sure. or something, but um, it was something that was still possible. It was something he'd been doing probably since the 60s, you know, um, and... You know, it felt very New York and very special and very like, wow, what a what a crazy thing to get to do.
0: And, you know, since there was like a 50 plus year age gap between the two of you, like, what was he like in conversation? Did he dominate the co- Like, was it mostly him talking and you listening or how did that go?
1: I mean, Richard was fundamentally a lecturer, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean right. fundamentally, like his personality was was designed for output in a way. <laughs> um, uh, so it was a lot of, yeah, just trying to ask him about things and getting him to talk about them. Um, you know, uh, he would stop talking abruptly when he was bored or done, um, and <laughs> with
0: his own argument, basically. Yeah, was I mean, like, when I he said
1: the thing he was going to say, and he uh-huh. was ready for you to go, he would just stop talking. He also, when he was done with you on the phone, he would just hang up. You just didn't, you wouldn't have realized the conversation ended. Because it hadn't. And he had just hung up on you. <laughs> like um, in the movies where yeah.
0: nobody ever says bye.
1: No. Um, right. But, but he was also, I mean, as we got to know each other better, you know, he was also um, somebody who I, I confided in him about my dad. You know, he was somebody who was a little older than my dad. And so he mm-hmm. could, he had watched my dad's generation from this little distance and you know that this generation of people born right after World War Two, and kind of how, how shut down and screwed up they were and you know I, I mean he he also did things other than lecture you know he 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 was very open and available um, to me once I got to know him you know <sighs>
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, the way that you talk about him also being available when you wanted to talk about your dad. Um, Because as I was reading his poems, you know, the way people talk about his poems made me sort of intimidated before I had read any. Right. Because I thought, oh, I need to have like an education that I didn't have to understand them. But then I started reading them and I thought they were surprisingly emotionally vulnerable.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think probably his favorite favorite aspect of being alive was conversation. You know, I mean, the poems are utterly jam-packed with knowledge and facts and information at some level because they needed something to talk about. What he Mm -hmm. liked to do was to talk and iterate language. And he liked sentences. He liked clauses. He liked to just see if you could get language to double back on itself. And so... Yeah, I think fundamentally, if you come to the poems, what, what you're really getting into is something very familiar, which is what it's like to converse, or which is what it's like to be on one side of a very erudite conversation. Um, You don't have to know what kind of handkerchief Lewis Carroll would have monogrammed or whatever thing he, you know, he was writing about. You just had to be kind of available to, to the idea of conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to get to a poem? Sure. Is there there any poem that you particularly love or, you know, that you think about when you think about him?
1: I mean, I I think about this book, Progressive Education, um, which he was writing. um, God, It's so full of weird stuff that I can't, that I shouldn't read. And the poems are so long. Um, Well, you
0: can read excerpts also. I mean, you can read whatever you like.
1: Um, so this book was the book that he was working on. I mean, this was really the, the last book that he wrote entirely when he had, you know, his, his wits about him. Um, and he enjoyed, I mean, and I, I probably knew him over the course of three, four books. Um, this is definitely the one he, he enjoyed writing most. The other thing that would happen when you would come to his house is if he had a new poem he would say, well, now let me read you my new poem. Um, wow. So this book is, he, you know, he went to a progressive elementary school, um, you know, and this In Ohio, been, right? Yep, uh, yeah. in Cleveland. And this would have been like the 30s, you mm-hmm. know, uh, 30s. I think he was born in 26 or 20... I thought
0: 29? 29. 29, so, okay. So yeah. yeah,
1: it like would have been the, toward the end of the 30s. I mean, it was sort of a, one of the first times that he really reanimated figures from his own life because the kids who speak in this book are based on kids that he grew up with. And he had this amazing couple of years of like just reimmersing in these memories of the kind of progressive articulate environment that formed him. So you'd come in and he'd read you the new poem. And it was like this, this installment of his, of this part of his autobiography that he'd never really shared before and he was so obviously enjoying it he was he he was he was a happy person you know and he he enjoyed what he was doing as long as i knew him you know yeah um so all right so this is the first poem in uh a progressive education it's called our spring trip dear mrs masters hi from the sixth grade class of park school We're still here in New York City at the Taft Hotel, as you must have guessed from the picture printed on this stationery. We inked X's to show you our rooms, which are actually on the same floor as the Terminal Tower Observation Deck in Cleveland, Ohio, which we visited on our fifth grade spring trip, but nowhere near so high as some skyscrapers in New York City. We've been to the top of the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Buildings, which are really high, But there's another reason to write, besides wanting to say hi. We're having a dilemma Mrs. Husband thought you might help us solve once we get back to school. Yesterday, we went to that dinosaur hall of the Natural History Museum for our class project. As you know, the sixth grade is constructing a life-size diplodocus out of chicken wire and stuff that Mrs. Husband calls paper mache But no instructions seem to show how the tail balances the head to keep our big guy upright. We need to see how the backbone of a real Diplodocus, it doesn't even need to be a live one, we could probably figure all this out from a good skeleton, manages to bear so much weight. So I'll pause there for a second just to, I mean, A, you feel instantly like just the giddiness of writing in this voice, right? And and all of his poems no matter whose voice they were purporting to be in, it was his voice. Like this is who he was. He was a precarious, hyper articulate, hyper educated childlike person who moved through the world that way with that kind of like boundless curiosity, even though, you know, by the time I knew him, he had literally, he knew everything. He had learned each thing, but he was still curious. Um, and then I just love, I mean, you, you can't tell, but of course there's clauses enclosed in, you know, M dashes. I mean, there's two parenthetical clauses on this one page. He also, uh, he was one of the only and last great practitioners of uh, syllabics. So all of his poetry was, you know, rather than use stressed and unstressed syllables, he would count the syllables. So all the poetry is written in syllabics. And so he also had some mechanism in his head of keeping track of that huh. as he was going along. You know, Marion Moore was really the, the, the last person to really do it. Like, I'm going to do it the whole time. Um,
0: That's interesting. Do you feel like he ever did that when he was talking? That, like, that mechanism was so ingrained? I mean, he, he didn't talk,
1: you know, m- most people talk, like, differently. Like, they talk normally. They say like. They, they interject. Mm-hmm. They, he talked like this. I mean, this is a transcription of how he talked. Um, He only had the one way. And so he must have been, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: Actually, this goes really fast. Like, I don't, I'm not in the least bored. So if you just want to continue reading this poem... You yeah, know, no, it doesn't feel long. It's no, very it's, it's entertaining. It's really not boring.
1: It's fun. <laughs> Did you know that some dinosaurs like the Brontosaurus are so huge they have a whole other brain at the base of their spine just to move their tail? Another thing. Each time Arthur Englehurst comes anywhere near our Diplodocus, it collapses because of not balancing right. This went on until David Stackover got so mad at Arthur, he assaulted him in the boys' cloakroom and gave his left shoulder a really good bite. So the other thing I love about these poems is that he insistently uses these names. Um, There's also, we'll, we'll meet Duncan Chu, who I love very much. And again, I remember him telling me once that they were the real names. And then I remember him telling me another time that they weren't the real names. Right. So uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know which is true. Um, <laughs> you know, little kids use each other's names all the time and their last names. These are the, you know, this is your Beyonce. I mean, David Stackover, you know, it, it's like the, <laughs> these are the icons of your world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. David claimed it seemed like the one thing which could keep Arthur away. And that was the moment you claimed the best thing to do was call an all-school assembly to explain about biting. Biting's no good? Which was why Arthur decided not to come on this year's spring trip. And there, you know, it's like there's this funny subtext, like Arthur probably wasn't allowed to come. You know, it's like he's always... The poems are also always revel in what their speakers do and don't know about what Uh they're saying, you know? uh uh Richard loved naivete. You know, he loved the ways that um, language could conceal and reveal a speaker's knowledge and their naivete. Um, that's
0: lovely. Because, yeah, of course, nothing will, like, reveal point of view than what that point of view doesn't know, right?
1: Right. And so that's why they're always, I mean, the, these poems are all addressed to the principal of this school. Uh, right. Um, who is not, <laughs> Mrs. Masters. Right. She's not with <laughs> the students. So they're always right. explaining all this stuff to her so that they can reveal themselves and reveal what they do and don't know. It's such um,
0: a great conceit, mm-hmm. and and yeah. he
1: he used it. I mean, all of the dramatic monologues, all of the poems about literary figures and historical figures, the way they all operate is that you're hearing from one of them, and you know who the other one is, right? And so you then, as a reader, use your knowledge to imagine: well, what would the what would the overhearer of this conversation have known that the person who's speaking in the poem didn't know? And that's amazing. I mean, it was this very interactive Mm -hmm. uh, thing Um, but we took a subway train from the hotel to the museum actually our first New York excursion where the uproar once we were on the platform was so loud one girl Nancy Angrish cried she was always chicken when someone told her that terrible roaring the express train made was Tyrannosaurus Rex himself and she believed it (laughs) well then we got to the great hall and were surrounded by dinosaurs each species we had studied some were not much bigger than chickens but some were humongous one was just a skeleton wired together so it was easy to see how we could make our diplodocus balance by putting a swivel in its neck and then you know it's like he's just Again, like, reveling in, like, yeah, how do you make a Diplodocus balance, you know? Like, <laughs> like the it,
0: engineering side of it, you yeah,
1: know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, it's, like, you can imagine him sitting there trying to think, what's the word? Swivel, you know? Like, that it, it's, like, it, it's so it's so silly and wonderful. All the other dinosaurs were stuffed with lights and motors inside so that when they moved, their heads balanced their tails. There was even a pterodactyl flying above back and forth our heads, probably on some kind of track. But even though Miss Husband tried explaining for the hundredth time how the dinosaurs had all been extinct for millions of years, not one person in the class believed what she said. The idea of a million years is so stupid, anyway typical grown-up reasoning you know the klein twins the biggest brains in the whole sixth grade class a lot bigger probably than both brains combined in this brontosaurus well they had a question for miss husband what if the dinosaurs being extinct for so long is just a smoke screen for being somewhere else a long ways away i mean and again like this is a you know, this is almost a trope, right? Like, where, you know, where are the dinosaurs? I mean, my, my, my Brenda often once recounted a story with our niece who, when she was little, Brenda said, you know, the dinosaurs are extinct. They're all dead. And she just kept going, they're all dead? <laughs> all You know, Richard just wanted to include that.
0: Yes, that, you know that in the poem. Yeah, yeah, um, it's like uh, what is it the the idea of a million years is yeah, so yeah, stupid, stupid anyway.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously it's the it's wisdom from the mouths of babes, but mm-hmm. but the, I, I mean, what I love about this book is that the speaking voice of the poems is fundamentally not different from the speaking voices of the adult speakers that he uh-huh, uh-huh. like it's, it's 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 him. It's like he he got to this pure essence of his imagination, which is, which is curiosity, you know, and he found this expression for it that I think was kind of finer tipped, had a finer point than, than he'd ever found before.
0: Um, uh-huh. It's interesting that he came to it so late, right? Like 2014, this book was published. Yeah, I don't know yeah. when he wrote it, but that's like... Just,
1: just before that. I mean, in, yeah. you know, between 2010 or so and 14.
0: Right, so it was like 70 years after this all supposedly happened, you know?
1: (laughs) I have to think that there was some burden of... You know, he no longer had to prove anything. He could just write. He could just... And not that I think he he felt like he had to prove much, but I don't know. Maybe he just dispensed his knowledge and he could then go back to his memory, you know? Um, He'd... he'd, I don't know. I mean, the, the first of these poems is in the previous book, and he reprints it in here. I mean, it it snuck up on him, you know? He didn't really know this book was coming, and then suddenly these kids just erupted out of him, and he was so excited to meet them and to remember them, you know? (laughs)
0: I'd love to hear more. It just yeah. it keeps going amazing.
1: Yeah. And Lucy Wenzel made an awful pun on stinky and extinct. Actually, Mrs. Masters, we've already figured it out about death. The dinosaurs may be extinct, but they're not dead. It's a different thing. You dig? Which is an archaeology pun. <laughs> oh! <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and you, and it's
1: like you just know that he was, he, you know, I could just imagine him <laughs> giggling when he wrote down you because he would never have you know used it in the kind of countercultural like it human- and it's
0: also a little uh anachronistic I yeah, guess no? yeah, yeah. But,
1: but it's like you just see that he couldn't resist <laughs> he just couldn't resist and then here comes Duncan Chu when Duncan Chu's Lassa jumped out the window or when Miss Husband's parents were killed together in a car crash we understood that that was being dead gone nobody around isn't that what dying has to mean not being here The dinosaurs are with us all the time, anything but dead. We keep having them. Later, at the Dinosaurus, the museum restaurant, there was chicken breast for lunch, stamped out in the shape of a triceratops. Strange how everything has to taste like chicken. Whether it's rabbit or rattlesnake, it's always just like chicken. Anyway, dinosaurs are alive as long as we think they are not like Duncan's dog, and that's just the problem. By next week, though, we'll be back in Sandusky, and while we're putting the swivel into our Diplodocus's neck, you could explain to us about time, those millions of years, and dinosaur chicken in the diner, and chicken-sized dinosaurs in the Great Hall, and where they really are.
0: That's incredible. I mean, one of the things that also struck me about so many of his poems, again, I came into them expecting that they would be mostly about art, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's how so many reviewers describe them. And then there's so much about death. Mm -hmm. There's so Mm -hmm. much about like this encroaching darkness and Mm -hmm. this question of, it's not even like death as an, like in this poem, an end all be all, but death as being all around us all the time. Not in a morbid way necessarily, but just like a fact of life.
1: Yeah, and he was just always curious about it. And and he he was also somebody who um he loved the idea of a figure. You know, like he would say, Oh, he was a great figure. You know, he he loved the idea of sort of abstracting a personality and, mm. and lifting it out and saying he was a marker on this sort of timeline of human um of human progress or, or, or regression or whatever. And, and he was always translating. He, I mean, literally he, he always had a book on a book stand on his desk and he would sit down and translate. He was always channeling the voices of the dead. Um, and he was always writing in the voices of people from the 19th century. So he was always trying to animate dead people and he didn't, I think he was just curious like they don't seem dead to me you know and and he he had um a a unique relationship with books i mean I, i think he lived in books while reading them more than most people do and so i think he felt profoundly connected to anybody whose words he could read whether they were alive or dead and if he could read them they weren't dead you know and and so i think he was just constantly thinking well, what the hell they're not dead you know and and um he he was very vital you know again he 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 gallivanted all over the city until his 80s you know he yeah. he was and and he always had younger friends cuz he was you know that was the other thing he was he was gay he didn't have kids he kept himself connected through the you know whatever 50 years of his of the non youth part of his life, you know, by constantly being close to younger poets and younger writers. So, you know, I I mean, his friends were also constantly dying, of course. And over the time that I knew him, his generation died. You know, James Merrill was one of his closest friends. He, He was still very actively grieving James Merrill, who died in the 90s when I met him. You know, Mark Strand, who had been, you know, he would say his best friend, for a large portion of his life. They had lost touch. Then Mark Strand came and worked at Columbia and they began to reconnect and then Mark died. You know, Susan Sontag, they were close and and she died and Dorothea Tanning. You know, I mean, these were all deaths that happened while I knew him. Um, It was a a parade, you know, because they were all old.
0: Right. And did that make him ever talk at all about his own... Mm -hmm. No. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think he sort of accepted it as a, yeah, I think it was sort of just part of his writer's story in a way, you know?
0: I mean, I'm asking because I don't know where I picked this up. It must be like some kind of pop psychology insight. But this notion that when we read to the degree that he did, that it's a way of trying to outrun death. It's like we're, I don't know, this kind of, desire for completism in a way. You know, like, I will read everything. And of course, we won't. But I'm interested in that. Like, was there a certain anxiety, you think, underpinning his amassing?
1: When I knew him, I did not have the sense that he was explicitly that that, that he was aware of an explicit anxiety about dying. I mean, look, I think Richard was also somebody you know, who, if an analyst were to sit down with his body of work would probably find, you know, that, that there were lots of parts of his personality that he sort of stored behind his literary life. You know, he, he mostly moved through the world as far as I saw him sort of joyfully. Um, I think there were lots of facets of his personality I didn't see. And I think there were lots of facets of his personality that, nope, you know, that he didn't, he didn't look at, you know? So, he didn't sort of profess to me evidence of, of being particularly anxious about death and he seemed to accept it rather, you know, I I mean, when each of those friends died, he was sad, you know, um, not like, not anxious, you know, not, he sort of accepted it, but, um, yeah, he was a, he was an amasser, you know, he was a collector. He, he, um, he he collected obviously books, but he collected people, and he collected um, movies, and he collected you know cultural experiences. So yeah, there there must have been some desire to you know to keep it all. But but he also just he he just I don't know he just moved through the world in this in the same way. He just you know new books came, old books went out, new students came, old students went out um and he just kept moving that way there was always the next book to translate the next poem to write and it always felt like it moved at a sort of relaxed pace but it it was it was uh, it was unstopping you know he he didn't he didn't take a break ever and there must have been something behind that
0: and how do you think about him now like I- after he died like how do you carry him in your day-to-day or as you're working or writing
1: you know i mean it it, it's like as we're talking like this i mean i he's so alive to me he's so uh just right there you know and he's one of the few writers i know who or i knew who like reading the books really does like take me back to a room with him you know he he was he was he like that you know That was how he talked, like the poems. And so um, he put himself in his books, you know, more than I think many of us do, more completely than many of us do. Um, But I just feel so grateful for having gotten to know him for as long as I did and, you know, having gotten to spend that last 20 years of his life in his orbit, you know?
0: And you said all the way at the beginning that you know, to be chosen by him, even for your nascent, as you describe them, poems, that, yeah, it felt like a great boon. You know, it felt like, wow, I made it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know confidence is a very tricky beast um, to keep alive, but but is there something of his belief in you that has sustained you over the years?
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, to be 22 and writing your first, you know, what feel like your first real poems, and then to have somebody of real consequence, not only read them, but want to read them, you know, he wanted to see them. I, I, it made me feel like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess I must have something worth saying, which indeed I may not, but I have enough of those little echoes in my head that I feel, yeah, absolutely buoyed by it. He wanted me to go out and be a poet. He felt I should. Um, and he felt many people should, you know, it wasn't particularly special to me, but the fact that he believed I should go out and be a poet has certainly helped me convince myself that I ought to, you know, and that it's a worthy practice and a worthy life to live.
0: hmm mm-hmm. Is there something I didn't ask you'd like me to have or that you want to say regardless? Mm.
1: I don't know. You know, I just, I wonder, I think that his work is obscure. I think the posture it takes is, is not terribly contemporary. Um, but I hope that people continue to discover what you did, which is that it's really alive and available and, and that there's something really, um, there's just something really wonderful about it. And it's worth reading. And it's, 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 it's real. It's, it's poetry, you know? Yeah. And he was just, he was a figure. Like, I don't think my students or students who never kind of shared the world with him will ever understand the presence he had when I entered the literary world, you know, in 2002, he was at the apex of this, you know, kind of half century of influence. And he had really shaped, done so much to shape the, the poetry world around the turn of the millennium. You know, so many of the major poets had actually had their start through him. It's amazing. And I, I, I just hope that that is remembered. He really loved poetry more than anything in the world. And he loved the people and the kinds of people who wrote it and he wanted to get more poetry into the world and he wanted to to keep poets um he wanted to sustain poets so they could write more poems so he could get more, more books of poems and read more poems that was his mo his whole life i mean he was he was you know, I don't want to mischaracterize him. He was a selfish person. He was he was very petulant. He was very cranky. He was very difficult. Um and he was very generous and he was very attentive and he was very like zoomed in. And I just you know, sitting here now, I just think it was so unlikely that I should have come to know him as well as I came to know him. I'm not a scholar. I'm not like I'm not brilliant in the ways that I think he valued. And I just feel so, but, I, but, I, but he valued me. I, it was, you know, one of the great friendships of my life. And I'm just very grateful that he chose me and that I managed to stay open hearted enough to be chosen.
0: I, I love the way you describe that. I mean, it makes me think of kind of the essence of a gift, right? That it feels unearned in mm-hmm. a way, but it does make you want to participate in that kind of cycle of generosity. You know, you want to keep passing it on.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah you want to deserve it, you know.
0: Richard Howard was the author of more than 20 books of poetry and critical prose, including his 1969 collection Untitled Subjects, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize, Two-Part Inventions, published in 1974, and Fellow Feelings, 1976. In his 1994 collection, like most revelations, he included elegies for friends who died from AIDS and cancer, And his 2008 collection, Without Saying, was a finalist for the National Book Award, after which he published one more collection in 2014 titled A Progressive Education. That was the one Craig read a poem from. He was also a prolific translator from the French, including Les Fleurs du Mal by Charles Baudelaire, for which he won a National Book Award, as well as many other writers, Camus, Sartre, Foucault, Barthes, Ciron, Breton, De Beauvoir, Deleuze, and of course André Gide, after whom his French bulldog was named. Besides the Pulitzer and the National Book Award, Richard Howard received the Harriet Monroe Memorial Prize, the Penn Translation Medal, the Levinson Prize, and the National Order of Merit from the French government. Craig Morgan Teicher is the author of four poetry collections. Brenda is In the Room and Other Poems, winner of the Colorado Poetry Prize, To Keep Love Blurry, The Trembling Answers, winner of the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets, and his latest collection, Welcome to Sonnetville, New Jersey. He also received a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and he is Director of Special Projects for the Bennington Writing Seminars, where he also teaches poetry and non-fiction. Some of the other poets who died this year were Kelly Cherry in March, Gloria Gervitz in April, Jay Hopler, Kenward Elmsley, Rosemary Cazzacallos, and Patricia Cavalli in June, James Longenbach, Noah Eli Gordon, and Don Matera in July, Dean Young in August, Peter Sheldahl and Gerald Stern in October, and then in November, Bernadette Mayer. Mayer published more than 30 books of poetry and prose, won Guggenheim, taught poetry and was taught at writing programs all over the country. She was a deeply influential avant-garde writer, but also, as my colleague Rachel James found out, broke when Rachel traveled up to New York State to visit Bernadette Mayer at her home to talk about money, the conversation started pretty deadpan. Rachel is the first one to speak. So do you guys have plans for the future? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny question. What if we said no? You can find the whole interview through the now sadly defunct Believer podcast, The Organist. The episode is titled, Give Everybody Everything, The Financial Life of Bernadette Mayer. To find out more about any or all of these poets, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sickerfuss. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening and see you in the new year.